you must have your Bibles open because you have to see exactly what Isaiah wrote in chapter 53. So Isaiah 53 is our text. If you don't know where that is, that's all right. Just go right to the very center of your Bible. Split it right down the middle and hang a right. You're going to find Isaiah. It's a big book, 66 chapters. Get to chapter 53. And we're going to be looking at this together because we're looking at the beautiful feet that carry the good news. And last week we saw that this good news centers, or it's called rather, the gospel. And it centers on the person of Jesus Christ. It's all about, at its most centered place, it's all about the salvation that is available through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if that does not make sense to you yet, Hopefully, by the end of this message, that's going to become a lot more clear. That's the message that we are invited to share. That's the one that we're invited to proclaim. So last week, we looked at the good news proclaimed. Today, what we're going to be looking at is the good news foreordained. And I'm going to make that very, very clear for us. And to do that, I'm going to begin by giving you a little bit of an understanding of what is the gospel story. I'm going to show you a chart, and you're going to see it up on the screen. Now, as you're starting to get a glimpse of that, have you ever seen on Facebook or Instagram, somebody posts a picture of an object, and you really don't know what it is, and you might respond and you might reply going, what is it? And they tell you what it is, but really what you're even more interested, I think, is what does it do? Well, today we're going to look at what is the gospel. I'm going to show it to you in chart form. We're going to unpack one of those four words very deeply. And then next week, you're going to understand more and more, well, what does the good news of the gospel do? What's the significance of it? How does it bear out in our lives? What is the impact of it in you as well as in me? So the gospel begins in Genesis chapter 1. Does that surprise anybody? It might. You might think it begins in Matthew chapter 1 when the New Testament breaks open. It actually begins Genesis 1, and it's in Genesis 1 that we learn that God created all that there is. Now, I want to really show you something. So I need you to really get your brain power behind this. Grab hold of it, and let's get it working down into your heart where it can really change your life. It is critical to understand what ought to be clear to every one of us. God our creator is God, our owner. I'm going to say it again. This is absolutely not emphasized enough, yet it saturates the entire Bible through the words Lord, Master, Sir. God, our creator, is God, our owner. We belong to God. He owns us. Now, I don't know if you're used to thinking like that, so I'm trying to get maybe a new thought in your mind. It's thoroughly biblical. You're going to see this all through the Bible. God is our creator. We belong to him. Therefore, he has the right to own us. 
And by the way, if that is a little bit of an alien thought for you, it shouldn't be because that's how it works with ownership. If you own something, well, let's actually go back a little bit. If you write a song, if you write a book, if you create a work of art, you're the owner. You have proprietary rights to it. It belongs to you, and you can decide what to do to it. As long as you don't sell it to somebody and transfer ownership, you own it. You've got the rights. It belongs to you. Now, take that same principle, and let's get it to us. God created all there is, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. He created you. He created me. Therefore, he is the owner, and we belong to him. And for a while... Till you get to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve lived in fellowship with God, their maker, their owner, walked in the garden with them in the cool of the day, according to Genesis 3. But then something happens in chapter 3. They rebelled against God. Now, here, listen to how I'm going to say this. This is critical. They rebelled against God, wanting to be free of any ownership but their own. They wanted to be their own masters. So they chose to rise up against God in defiance and in rebellion. And by the way, that's the core of what it means to be a sinner. It means you have risen up against God in cosmic defiance. And they rose up, Adam and Eve, but instead of rising inexplicably to them, they fell. They wanted to break free from God, but horribly, they found that they sold themselves into a slavery to a terrible master called sin. I'm not sure you're going to see this so clearly in too many places of the Bible until you get to John 8, where Jesus was having a discussion with some Jews, and he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And then he says something incredibly controversial to the Jews, and the truth will set you free. Don't overlook the word free. They became defensive. They responded to Jesus. We are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And then Jesus responds to them with chilling certainty. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Started with Adam and Eve. They wanted to have their own ownership. They rose up against God. Instead, they fell into a slavery to sin. And guess where you and I find ourselves? Slaves to sin. You know, I've never in many, many years of ministry ever had anybody tell me that they've never sinned. I mean, come on, you know you've sinned. There's just something inside of you, God ordained, God created, called your conscience. There's at some point in your life, you've violated your conscience, whether it's some norm, normative standard that your parents built into you or the one that God instilled in everybody. You know you violated it. I've never had anybody said, no, I'm completely innocent. I've never sinned. Nobody's told me that. See, he who sins is a slave to sin, and you are unable, just like myself, unable to free yourself. But here's the good news. 
if the Son sets you free, if Jesus sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the good news of the gospel. Freedom from what? From the harsh, life-destroying power of sin. It's a power that is too great for us to break. So here's what I've said so far. God created everything beautiful, everything perfect. And to him belongs creation. That would be us as well. And he is our owner. And our first owners, our first parents, Adam and Eve, rose up against them. They rebelled against him. They wanted to be their own owners. They wanted to be their own masters. And instead of rising up in freedom, they fell down into slavery to sin. And Jesus says in John 8, I'm the only one that can set you free from that power. How? Well, if God wants us back, and I really mean this reverently, and I think you'll know my heart, if he wants us back, then he's got to pay the price for it. Why is that? Because you and I, we lack any kind of spiritual currency that can buy us out of the slavery. We have no power to free ourselves. So if God is going to get us back, he needs to pay the price. He needs to provide for redemption simply because we have no way to do it. There's no power in us to do it. See, we're helplessly caught into sin. It is a power too great for us. We could do nothing to free ourselves. Now, you've experienced that, I think, right? I mean, just in day-to-day struggles, things that you don't like in your own, your own behavior, that you hurt people that you speak so harshly to people, that you lie to people, that you gossip, that your eyes look at things that they shouldn't be looking at and violate your covenantal vows to your spouse and and that you purposely choose to listen and entertain yourselves with things that are so disparaging to holiness. I mean, listen, we all struggle with these things. We all struggle with these things. And if you just say to yourself, which someone told me recently, that I've got to just try harder, all you're doing, if I could put it in the most clear metaphor that I know, all you do is take your muddy hands and you use those muddy hands to try to clean the dirty window of your soul. All you're going to do is make it worse. You're going to smear it all. That's what it's like trying to rise up and defeat sin in your own power. It just does not work. If it's going to be effective, then God, whose hands are holy, must clean the slate of our soul. And now we're talking about the third part of that chart, redemption. It's what Jesus did. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what about that word ransom is so important? It means the price you've got to pay, the money that you pay to buy the freedom for a prisoner of war, or a slave. Those are two main ways that they used the word ransom in the olden days of the Old Testament. The ransom is the price that you pay. By the way, if somebody kidnaps somebody and they hold a ransom note, that's the price you got to pay to get them back. It works the same way today. Well, the ransom theologically in the understanding of redemption, it works the same way. God has to pay the ransom because we have no currency of which to pay it. And if he wants us back, if he wants to free us from slavery to sin, then he's got to pay it. 
But cold, hard cash has no value. That's why a billionaire is just as lost in the power of sin as a pauper. There's just no value spiritually in, mo in money. You can't buy your freedom, not from sin. Isaiah 52, 3 tells us that Israel was sold for nothing. Same with you and I. We were sold for nothing, but yet you shall be redeemed without money. So it's not more dollar bills that will pay the ransom. There's got to be some price that God will pay that is not of earthly currency. Here's what it is. You ready? Jesus Christ paid the ransom in his blood. Because sin brings with it the rightful sentence of death. I mean, listen, when you rise up against God in cosmic defiance against your creator, your owner, the one who you belong to, who has rightful options over you, when you rise up in rebellion against him, that is a judgment that any heavenly court would say you deserve to be put to death. So sin brings the right judgment of death. Jesus is going to rescue us from that. We're born into slavery to sin. Now listen, we've got a baby back there that actually I think they took her down into the nursery. We have babies all over this church. Oh my goodness, we are so blessed as a church. Listen, just everybody, go out here tonight. Go make a baby with your spouse. If you're not married, don't be doing that. But just make more babies. We are an incredibly blessed church. And when I get to hold these babies and I get to see their, their, in, their indelible features that are just so perfect, I know something that moms of a newborn try not to remember. There is inside of the heart of that baby a need for salvation. There's already a nature to sin. Somebody's going to have to rescue that baby. So we as a church, listen, this is what covenant community means. We as a church are responsible along with the parents who bear chief responsibility, along with the siblings. Listen, if you're a brother or sister, don't think you're off the hook. You've got a responsibility to help your family members love Jesus. But the church bears that as well. We want to lead them to Jesus. See, Jesus paid the ransom in his blood. It's the only form of, of payment that would work for those caught up in the slavery to sin. There is life in the blood. In other words, when a Jewish person in the Old Testament would sacrifice an animal, it wasn't just that metallic, smelly, in sticky form of congealing blood that had properties for forgiveness, that had nothing to do with the actual physical properties of blood. It's not like you could just extract a pint of blood from the arm of Jesus and throw it against the altar in the temple. When they sacrificed the Jewish people, an animal for their forgiveness of their sins, that animal had to die. So the shedding of blood just was a euphemism that meant the animal was put to death. And it's because they believed in the Bible teaches that there is life in the blood. So it's not the physical property of blood. It's what the blood stands for, which is life. So when you sacrifice a lamb, what you're doing is that lamb's life is offered in your place so that you can have forgiveness from your sins. 
The only form of payment that can rescue one who is caught up in captivity to sin is blood because life is in the blood. This is why Ephesians says, in Jesus we have redemption, which means to be repurchased, to be bought back through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. For the redeemed, Paul said in Romans 6, sin will have no dominion over you. So Christian, here's the good news, that when Jesus offered that ransom payment in his blood, meaning in his life given freely for you, he died on that cross and you put your faith in that, that blood, that life, that forgiveness was applied to your soul and sin will never have dominion over you again, meaning that you were bought back out of slavery to sin and given back to God, your creator, to whom you belong. You see the good news there? God is our creator. He's our owner. But we've all risen up against him in rebellious sin. We've all fallen into the power of that sin. Yet God loves us. He redeemed us by paying the ransom and the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his son. We have been bought with a price. We belong to him now who ransomed us by his own blood. He takes responsibility to care for you. He takes responsibility to, to love you. To provide for you that you will never be enslaved again and grovel in servitude again to the power of sin. You are free forever. Now, I'm going to say something that is incredibly powerfully underrated. You ready? Christian, you got to believe this. When we sin as Christians, it is not because we have to. It's simply because we want to. When you sinned before you were a Christian, you could not break free of the power of that sin. Yes, you could overcome every once in a while. You could say no every once in a while, but the servitude, enslaving power of sin, you had no way out of it. Not until the blood of Christ was applied to your soul. Now you are no longer under the dominion of sin. You sin now, I sin now, it's because we wanted that sin more than we wanted our God. And that's sobering, isn't it? That kind of hurts the heart a little bit. Now I want you to know that. That's the good news of the gospel. When you live your life this week and you feel that temptation coming, whatever that weakness that you are routinely or often falling into, whatever that sin that has that power over you, you need to know, Christian, that cannot have dominion over you unless you walk back into that prison cell and give it power. Let me tell you something, that prison cell door can never close. It's still open. If you're in Christ, there is no prison cell that can close back over you. You're in there by choice and by the grace of God, you can walk back out. That's the power of the good news. And Hebrews speaks of this redemption as being eternal salvation, Hebrews 5, 9, and it reaches forward. Here's the fourth one. It reaches forward to the return of Jesus, and he's going to bring a restoration of all things. So now you're looking at that chart, or you're thinking of that chart, you've got creation, fall, you've got redemption, now you've got restoration, Christ is coming back. Luke 21 says what it's going to be like when it's drawing near. I think we're here. Here's what it says in Luke 21. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your heads, 
because your redemption is drawing near. See, we've been redeemed the moment you put your faith in it, meaning you've been bought back out of slavery, repurchased for God, you belong to him, but that final redemption where you and I, we will never sin again, we will never succumb to another temptation. It's called eternal glory in heaven. That's still coming. And Jesus, when he returns, he's gonna bring that final redemption with him. See, right now we get a foretaste of it, but one day we get the fullness of it. And yet even now we're learning to more and more live in the freedom of our redemption, no longer shackled by a relentless orientation to sin. We are free to live the way that we were always meant. We're created for God. We could be in fellowship with the spirit of God and we can worship our heavenly father who loves us. Now you're wondering, why did I even ask you to turn to Isaiah 53? Are we ever gonna get there? See, some of you are just skeptics of my preaching and probably you need to repent. That's the mastery of sin over you. Isaiah 53, we're there now. And what he's gonna do, Isaiah, in this chapter, he's gonna focus in on the redemption part of that chart that I showed you. It's the redemption part of the gospel story, the suffering, the death of Jesus, our redeemer. And I'm gonna tell you that it's something that was foreordained long before Jesus came into this world. In fact, Isaiah in 53 is prophesying something that is gonna happen 750 years into the future. That's amazing. John Calvin called Isaiah 53 verse one, a dismemberment of the text. You know why he called it that kind of graphic? Dismemberment means he cut off a limb. He called it that because it breaks the flow that actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13. So let's look at that, 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And Isaiah is just gonna roll right into chapter 53. There's no need for a chapter break. That's put in there by people who organize the Bible. That's not inspired by God. Did you know, by the way, the Jewish synagogues today, they refuse to read chapter 53 in their services. They'll read from Isaiah 52, they stop at verse 13, and then they, they used to skip right over to chapter 54. It stirred up too many arguments, too much confusion. It's called, quote, the torture chamber of the rabbis, chapter 53, because everybody kept saying, well, wait a minute, doesn't this kind of show that it points to Jesus as the Messiah? And they didn't believe that it did. See, rabbis, those are Jewish pastors, basically. They originally held that Isaiah 53 was all about the Messiah but it was too clear that Jesus Christ fulfilled every single bit of it. So in the 12th century AD, they began to say that Isaiah was not writing about some personal Messiah, but about the present and future sufferings of Israel. That's how they got around it. Now, I wanna, I wanna kind of dig into that for a moment because somebody that might be a Jewish friend of yours has been brought up that Isaiah 53 is about Israel. So you've gotta be able to take them to that story, if you remember it, of Philip and that Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight. 
If I were you, I would write that down in chapter 53. The Ethiopian had been reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, up in his, up in his chariot. And it goes like this, like a sheep, Acts 8.32 says, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And then the eunuch asks Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? You see, it was already in a Jewish debate that was going on even in the first century. What is chapter 53 really about? Who's it about? Is it about the Messiah or Israel or about Jeremiah or Nahum? There's lots of options that they had. Well, Philip answers a question. Verse 35 of Acts 8, he opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Well, there's your answer. If you want to know what Isaiah 53 is about, which the eunuch was reading and asks Philip, who's this about? Philip answers him, you can't get more clear than this. It's about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is clearly about Jesus, who is the Lord's servant, chapter 52, verse 13, which Matthew makes clear in his gospel as he quotes Isaiah. This is Matthew 12. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So who is the servant? The servant is Jesus. Who is Isaiah 53 about? The answer is Jesus. Now we're going to follow the story of redemption through chapter 53. Now you're ready? Here's what I'm going to do, and we're going to kind of fly through this. I'm going to actually just read through Isaiah 53. I'll make some kind of comments on it here as we go. But I needed you to understand chapter 53 is not talking about Israel. It's not talking about Jeremiah the prophet. It's not talking about Nahum or Isaiah. It's talking about Jesus. And what Isaiah is going to do, this is so incredible. I never knew that, by the way. I never knew what I'm about to teach you until this last week. What Isaiah does in chapter 53, he so beautifully will show us that our Redeemer is all about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Here we go. That's your outline. Three little points. I'm going to fly through it. Number one, the life of Jesus, our Redeemer. Now, you got to be in the Word of God. That's why I asked you to open up the Bible. Here we go. Verse 1, chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? So out of the gate, out of the gate, there's a call for faith. You've got to believe now, can you all look at me for just a moment? I promise I'll be very quick with this. I can't assume that every single person in here is a believer. You know, the believer that's one who has entrusted the weight of their soul to what Jesus did for them on the cross. Not somebody that all their life has been hearing about Jesus and they go to church and they don't even think about it anymore. And yeah, Jesus died. I, I believe he lived, but he has really no central meaning in your life. Listen, that's not a believer. If that's you, you're not a believer. I'm not even trying to be judgmental. You're not a believer unless Jesus is not just your savior, but your Lord. 
meaning that you understand now you belong to him. He repurchased you out of slavery to sin. He is your creator. You belong to him. He is your master. Now it's a life of working out the obedience by the power of Jesus that lives in us by his spirit. That's what a believer is. You've entrusted the weight of your soul to the message of the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for you, and your life has come alive. It may be muted in spots. You may be learning how to live this thing. You may seem to be taking more steps backward than forward, but there's an an inexorable journey forward. You are learning by daily, day by day, learning how to love Jesus more and the people around you. That's what what it's like to be a believer. So right out of the gate, there's a call for faith. And if that's not you, if you've not yet become a believer, listen, today the Bible says is the day for your salvation. Put your faith in Jesus and your eternal life will come into being and you will never regret that decision, not ever. The Messiah, the Deliverer, will come in a way, in a form that no one will ever expect. This is what Isaiah is about to teach. Look at chapter 52, verse 14. His appearance, this is Jesus, was so marred beyond human semblance. He was crucified and beaten and flogged so violently that he barely looked human. This is what Isaiah is saying in 750 years will come the Messiah and his appearance will be marred beyond human semblance, beyond human semblance. For he, Jesus' son, grew up before him, God the Father, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. That means that that was a time when Israel was hopeless. They were dominated by Roman power. Remember, they were slaves to Rome at the time of Jesus. And from a child, Jesus, Luke 2, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus grew up before God. He matured. He grew in wisdom. He had no form, chapter 53 of Isaiah. Look at verse 3. Got to watch with me. You got to hang with me on this. Verse 3, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Now, Can we all admit, I think for most of us, some of us have given up. I might be one of them, but most of us really do want to look attractive. There's power in that in America. If you're not attractive looking, you actually will find the loss of power. It's a cruel culture. Well, guess what? It was kind of similar in biblical days. This is why Saul was such a a remarkably appealing king to Israel. He was six and a half feet tall. He just looked powerful. He was handsome, head and shoulders above everybody else. I think that means physical stature, but it might also mean he was just better looking than the rest of the guys. David was ruddy and handsome. Tim Ackley's just ruddy. I got shortchanged. I'm the sixth of, of six children. I guess that numerically works that way. They ran out of DNA juice by the time they had me. I am so thankful nobody said amen. So we've got the life of Jesus, our Redeemer, and Isaiah is looking 750 years into the future when he's writing this. This It's amazing. But point number two, we're going to fly through this. The suffering of Jesus, our Redeemer. 
Look at verse 3, chapter 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What's that word despised mean? You might think you know, maybe you don't. It means to be grossly underestimated. That's what that word means in the Hebrew language. He was viewed as having no worth at all, no value to give anybody. That's what it means to be despised. And he was acquainted with grief. He was utterly rejected from the very people he had created. Can you imagine being the creator? The very people that you have brought into being, don't think that it just happens through natural consequences of reproduction. God has his hand in every baby born, knitting them together, Psalm 139, in the womb. He decrees what they're going to look like. He numbers their days. He's, he's the one that imprints their purposes on them. The personality of your children, that was given by God. That is unalterable. Don't try to change your personality. Just get the rough edges of it off. Because that's the way God made you. He was acquainted with grief because he was utterly rejected from the people that he had created. They belonged to him, yet they rose up in rebellion. He stepped fully, Jesus did. Can you imagine this? He stepped fully into a daily river of suffering. He had perfect compassion. You and I, we could turn off the compassion button. When we get overloaded and our mercy, we just, we've given out as much as we got. We just close our eyes. Jesus never once closed his eyes. He was fully, perfectly compassionate to every single person in need. And he bore their sickness and carried their pain. He was acquainted with grief. Surely, verse 4, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That means our sins. For he was crushed for our iniquities. That's another word for our sins. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It was all of, our, look at the pronouns. It was all our griefs our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, they were all placed on his innocent soul. He was struck and smitten and afflicted in our place. We're the ones that have gone astray like sheep. Verse six, we've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, all of our sins. So you've got the sacrificial system. You've got an innocent victim called a lamb sometimes a heifer, sometimes a bird. And you know what would happen? Let's say that you were coming to the temple and you needed your sins forgiven and you would bring that lamb that you would have to select out of your flocks. You couldn't select a blemished lamb. This, you couldn't take a lamb. Oh, this thing's not gonna live much longer. Let me take that one to God and give it to him. That was unthinkable. That would be like you bringing it to the offering plate. $5 when you make 40000 a year. That's crazy. That's not what God likes. He rejects that out of hand. He wants your best. He wants your first fruits. So you've got to bring an unblemished lamb, one that has no spots, no scab diseases, no cuts, no abrasions, no scars. You've got to bring that to the temple. You're the one that has to bring it. And you walk it into the temple, and you're going to get into the court where the priests are. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to be holding 
holding a cone-shaped bucket made out of silver or gold, and they're going to hand to you a knife. This is how it worked. And when the shofar blew, that was your signal to slit the neck of the lamb while they caught the blood in that conical bucket. You're the one that had to kill it, not some priest. You had to feel that something innocent dies in the place of someone guilty. We're the guilty ones. Somebody innocent has to die in our place. This is a substitution on the cross. And they would take that cone-shaped bucket. They had to move quickly to the altar, and they would splash it against the four sides of the altar. They would put it on the four horns of the altar, and then they would drop the rest of it in the ground behind the altar. That was a blood poured out. It was the physical properties of blood. It was the life that just gave up itself so that you could live. That was the power in the blood. See, in shedding his blood, Jesus died. His life given in place of yours, in place of mine. He died that we might live. The perfect for the sinner, redemption for the one in bondage. And verse 7 comes around. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He never complained once. He didn't shrink back, Jesus. This was the redemption plan before God brought everything into creation. It was foreordained and foretold by Isaiah 750 years before it happened. Jesus died. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Look at verse 9. His grave with a wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was entirely innocent. But Isaiah won't end it there because the good news goes on. It goes on, not just the life and the death of our Redeemer, but the resurrection of Jesus, our Redeemer, point number three. And we'll end with this point. Verse 10, yet it was a will of the Lord to crush him. It was a will of the Father to crush his son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes no offering for guilt, he shall see, or I'm sorry, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. There's this resurrection language. He shall not stay in that grave. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted right and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, the story would not end with the death of Jesus. For the father would prolong his days, Isaiah said. He would live and see many. He's going to see with his own eyes many accounted righteous. He's going to bear their sins. He's going to bear their iniquities. He's going to do all of this. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide his spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes present tense intercession for the transgressors. 
God the Father will exalt his son, Jesus, and those who believe in him will share in the riches of his son. This is the beautiful promise of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, Christian, I hope you're reading that. This is why this is such good news. Do you know that you are blessed with every one of the riches of Christ in the heavenly places? They're yours. You are no pauper. You are in no spiritual poverty. You are rich beyond your means, rich beyond your understanding. And this is the good news of redemption. Now, I want you to hear this, and I'm one I am two minutes and 10 seconds from being done. I really don't know. I'm going to make a stab at it, though. You ready? I want you to hear this. This is the story of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is how God created all that there is. And yet Adam and Eve, along with all of us, have risen up in cosmic defiance, wanting to be our own masters, wanting to own our own selves so that we can live in the freedom of our own hands. And it has dropped us and fallen us right into the power of the slavery of sin. And we were trapped. But God would not leave us there. He sent his redeemer to pay the ransom price in his own blood. He would die in our place like that lamb. And he would be buried in a grave that belonged to a rich man, yet he would not stay there. And three days later, the father raised him. The Bible says the spirit of God also raised him. It also says he was given, Jesus was the power to raise himself back to life. All the triune God said, you're not going to stay dead. You're going to come back to life and you're going to see many come to righteousness. And this good news is going to get proclaimed all over the world. And your people are the proclaimers. That would be you. And that would be me if you have put your faith in Jesus. That's your good news you get to share. Titus says, as I end, Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. That's the gospel. Amen? It's pretty amazing. Let's pray.